I think everyone probably has heard of the children's song. It's called a children's song, Jesus Loves Me. Raise your hand if you've ever heard the song, Jesus Loves Me. Okay, so that's everybody. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak. They are weak, but he is strong. Where does the Bible tell us so? Well, John 13, 1. John 13, 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Or Galatians chapter 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Or 1 John 3.16. We could say John 3.16, but let's do 1 John 3.16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And I have another passage that tells us of the love of Christ for his people. I have another one for you. It's our passage in Luke. Go to Luke chapter 7 and find verse 24. Luke chapter 7 and verse 24. We're going to be reading through verse 28. As you're turning, it's been a week or so, remember the context John the Baptist is rotting in jail, in prison. He is discouraged. He's disheartened. He's doubting. He's confused. He's alone in the dark in the prison, and he wonders, he begins to wonder if Jesus is indeed the Messiah, and so he sends two of his disciples right to Jesus. He goes right to Jesus with his doubt, and he can't do it himself, so he sends two of his disciples, and his, the disciples of John the Baptist ask Jesus, are you the coming one? And Jesus responds to the doubt of John the Baptist by gentle, confirming actions and the power of the Word of God. And so, John the Baptist's disciples are encouraged, and they go back to the prison to tell John all about what Jesus has done and what Jesus has said. And as they're walking off to talk to John the Baptist, our Jesus turns to the crowd that are watching and listening to this whole thing, and he begins to speak. And that's where we pick up in verse 24. John chapter 7 and verse 24. If you have a Bible in the pew back, it's page 1029. It's in the bulletin insert as well. Verse 24, when the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? Three times he asked that question for emphasis. A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, 
I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet, he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Luke wants us to deeply reflect this morning, to deeply reflect on three people, to deeply reflect on three people in our passage. And when we are done, it's my prayer that in a deeper way, we would see our immense privilege and we would see the love of Christ and the glory of Christ like we've never seen him before. Because that's what Luke wants us to do. He wants us to deeply reflect on three people. So number one, we are to reflect, number one, on John's place, on John the Baptist's place. What is his place? And, and he, he wants us to, Luke wants us to reflect on his great place, his, his great character, and his great calling. Look again at the text in verse 24. Okay, he turns to the crowds. He's speaking to the crowds about John the Baptist intentionally. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. You have to understand the people are probably as confused as John. I mean, this guy preached in power. The Lord was using him. He must have been doing something. Now he's rotting in jail and there is no rescue and he's doubting the Messiah that he pointed to. Jesus turns to say, let me, let me, let me talk a little, about, a little bit about this. Did you come to see a reed shaken by the wind? I, I like to, to duck hunt with my kids and if you know anything about duck hunting, you choose the worst day to duck hunt. You want when it's raining and when it's windy. When everyone else is sleeping in, you want to be there. And you go out and the sun is not, you can't see the sunrise, but the wind is blowing at your back and you see the reeds and the reeds are just, they're just whipping in the wind. This is the picture and he's saying, look, did you go out to see a reed whipped by the wind? Did you go out to see a person that is easily swayed to the left or to the right, just whipped all over the place, easily moved, blown all over the place? And so Jesus is speaking with symbol. He's speaking of John the Baptist. As one scholar says, is John an ordinary, spineless, or uncertain person? You think he's doubting because of his character, that he's whipped around by the wind? That's not who you went out to see. That's not who you saw standing in the wilderness preaching. That's not why you traveled miles to hear him preach. He spoke with authority. He was a man of conviction. You went out to see his fiery, convinced preaching and to be baptized by him. What, did you think you were going to meet a, a man vacillating between opinions? Swayed by popular opinion? Don't think wrongly about John based on his circumstances right now. Why do you think he's in jail right now? Precisely because he's not a reed shaken by the wind. But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? 
Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. So Jesus expects the answer no to that question. No, we didn't travel 40 miles to hear John preach going to to see a pushover, a weakling dressed in soft clothing. That word is translated as effeminate in other places. The idea is this. As John MacArthur notes, clothing that is frilly, lacy, embroidered clothing that has always been worn by pampered nobility, end quotes. What did you expect to see that? No, what did they see? Well, we know in Matthew chapter 3, a, a, a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt, and he ate locusts and wild honey. John wasn't a pampered man living in luxury, flattering people, saying what they want to hear. What was he? He was a prisoner languishing in the dark prison because he spoke the truth. So don't look at his current circumstances and somehow take a direct line to his character. The book of Job. Don't do that. This man is firm in his convictions. He's willing to speak the truth. He is the real deal. He's the real deal. And, of course, Jesus needs to say that because John pointed to him. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. And so Jesus now begins to agree with the crowd, said, yes, he is a prophet. You got that right. But he's more than a prophet. He's more than a prophet. And so Jesus is reflecting on before the crowd, defending John the Baptist, first about his great character and then his great calling in verse 27. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And so Jesus says, let me tell you, he's not just a prophet, an Old Testament prophet. No, he's more than a prophet. He is a prophet, but he's a messenger sent sent to prepare a people to find their way to the Lord. God the Father sent his messenger ahead of the Messiah. And, and so Jesus is paraphrasing Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and saying, this is the one. He is the messenger. It's none other than John the Baptist, who has come in the spirit and in the power of Elijah in fulfillment of the book of Malachi. John the Baptist prepares our way to Jesus. Now, keep your finger, and we're going to have to turn to lots of different places today. That makes it fun, I guess. Go back just a couple pages to the left to Luke chapter 1, verse 17. Go to Luke chapter 1, verse 17. Stay in Luke chapter 7 as well, so you can flip back quickly. So Luke chapter 1, verse 17, the text says, It is he, speaking of John the Baptist, who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Why? Why? To turn the hearts, the hearts, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to to children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. And now notice the last phrase in verse 17. So as to make ready, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So John the Baptist is much more than a prophet. He's much more even than a messenger. He is a preparer of hearts, a preparer of a people for the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a spiritual preparation where where John is probing and digging into the hearts of people dealing with family relationships, dealing with disobedience and attitudes. And so we know, because we've preached through Luke, that the way that John the Baptist prepares the way to Jesus is by preaching 
Repentance. By preaching repentance. That prepares hearts for Jesus. He, John the Baptist is, can't stand superficial religion. He can't stand heartless formalism and ceremony. He wants the real deal. He wants the heart. And he goes after it through the Word of God. And how does he prepare our way to Jesus? Well, if you've ever mountain biked, you know how Jesus prepared the way. If you go on an extreme mountain biking trail, you've got tons, you got your goal, which is for me survival. But you have your goal to get there at the end of the trail, and you're going somewhere, and there's obstacles on the path to get you there. They're usually large boulders. That's what John the Baptist does. There are boulders blocking our hearts. There's hardness in our hearts, and John preaches repentance to remove these obstacles so we have a clear path to trust in Jesus. So what obstacles did John remove? Did he need to fix the, the politics of the day? Well, I'm not sure he did a great job with Herod. Did he need to revamp the social structure of the day? Did he need to give a lesson on loving yourself? No, John removed obstacles within the heart by preaching repentance. He, he, he preached to, to remove the obstacles of self-deception and self-worship and I can save myself and self-righteousness to remove these obstacles so that people could see their need for Jesus Christ. They could see their sin and they could come to him. And those Jewish leaders, they said, we gotta, we're Jews. We got our family name. We're sincere enough. We're good enough. We don't need to be baptized by John. In fact, that's offensive to us. Baptism is for Gentiles. Wash off those filthy Gentiles. Make them convert into Judaism. We will not submit to the baptism of John. But John came to bulldoze that over. And to prepare the way to Jesus by preaching repentance. And that's why Jesus says, and we're going to build on this, I think you, you got the answer now for why Jesus says in verse 28, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Okay, now I want you to let this sink in. If you haven't been tracking, listen carefully. No one greater than John. John is imprisoned, doubting, a life cut short, a life wasted in the wilderness, and Jesus is saying this is the greatest person alive up to that time? What does this tell you about greatness? What makes your life great in God's eyes? Why does Jesus say there's no one greater than John? Well, I think we've looked at it. We've looked at his character and his calling, but let me just underline this. Let's just fill this out. I mean, John the Baptist, no one's greater. Well, I mean, Luke 1.15, he was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. That's pretty cool. John the Baptist went out to the wilderness and prepared for years. For years in the wilderness, he prepared meeting with God for his short ministry that was truncated by a sword. And he was a faithful herald of the Messiah. He was faithful to preach about sin, faithful to preach about judgment, faithful to tell people the truth. And then when they are good and riled up and their heart was stirred up, he said, don't even bother following me. I'm not even worthy to untie the sandal of the one whom you need to follow. There he is. Behold him. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why is he greater? Because he was, he was great, were one, because he was a faithful herald of the, of the Messiah. And he did not, John did not bring attention to himself. It was all about Jesus. In John chapter 3, in verse 30, 
Jesus is baptizing more people than John, and everyone's getting riled. John, you're losing your ministry. And John says, he must increase, and I must decrease. John the Baptist was a man of humility. Listen carefully. Humility is always the marker of greatness in the kingdom. He was faithful to preach. He was a humble man of God. Brothers and sisters, we need to rethink our lives on this point. I really think we need to do some serious praying about this. Strive not to be great in the world's eyes. Great people in this world are the people that are proud, that are pushy, that force their way in and force other people out. But the kingdom, in the kingdom, greatness is marked by humility. Greatness is not, is, is not marked by circumstances. Greatness is not marked by visible success. Greatness is marked by humility and faithfulness to God. What are you struggling so hard to achieve in this world? Consider that the greatest man born up to that time is shut in the darkness of a cold prison struggling with doubt who soon his head will roll. A life cut short. But I don't think this is the primary reason why John is the greatest. It's not just his great character, but it's his great calling. John the Baptist was more than a prophet. He was a messenger. But listen now, listen carefully. You need to get this. John the Baptist was a unique figure in biblical history. The old covenant, the age of promise, the age of shadow, collided at the time of Christ, at the time of John the Baptist, with the age of fulfillment, the new covenant, the age of substance. And there John is, bridging that gap, a key figure in the overall plan of God. I think the scholar Bach is right, quotes, the greatness of his position is a direct result of the time in which he served. As he prepared For the Lord, he assumed a position in God's plan as prominent among the prophets, in quotes. So John is a bridge. John the Baptist is a bridge between the old age and the age to come. And so Jesus says of him, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. And we're called to reflect on John the Baptist's place in redemptive history. And to, re- to reflect and to think about and to marvel at what makes someone great. It is not their circumstances that makes them great. It's not their charisma, but their character and fulfilling their calling from God. What about your pursuit? Teens, listen to me. I know you're planning college and career. What is the, your What is your pursuit of meaning and impact and excellence in this life? What are you about? And that leads us then to a shocking statement of Christ as we move to the next reflection. We've reflected on John's place. Secondly, let's reflect on our privilege, on our privilege I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet, he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Did you hear that? I know you've read it a thousand times, but did you hear that? Based on what I've said already, yet, he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Okay. By the way, that's you and that's me. That's every true believer is in the second half of that verse.
Among those born of women, there was no one greater than John, yet the very least is greater than John the Baptist. Now, this is not saying that the Old Testament prophets and John the messenger preparer is not somehow a part of the kingdom of God or anything like that. No, John the Baptist was the last of the prophets in the old order. The old covenant. He's transitional. He's part of the age of what? Promise. Not a part of the age of fulfillment. And what Jesus is saying is incredible. The least in the kingdom of God. I take that to mean the least participating in the age of fulfillment. Participating in the beginning of the end of the age. The least, the humblest among us with simple faith that's turned from their sin, a nobody in that kingdom who's turned humbly from their sin and put their trust in Jesus Christ. In this age is, the, is greater than the greatest in the old age, the age of promise. That's what I'm saying. That's what I think Luke is saying much more importantly. Now, what do I mean by that? Good question. Let's keep going. I don't think it means I've got a greater character than John the Baptist. All right. Raise your... No, I won't, won't do that. Greater character than John the Baptist? No. Greater calling than John the Baptist? No. Here's what we have. We have a greater privilege than John the Baptist. We have greater clarity than John the Baptist. We have greater understanding than John the Baptist. And I would say this, and hold on to your seatbelts, we ought to have a greater experience than John the Baptist as well. What do I mean? Let me give you a feel for where Luke is taking us. Turn two pages over to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, and I want you to find verse 23. Luke chapter 10, verse 23, turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them, and to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. great privilege that we have as believers in Christ participating in the spiritual aspects of the new covenant in Christ after the death and resurrection of Christ. It's astounding. We haven't meditated on this enough. This is what I feel the heart of this is what Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. Don't turn there. Write the reference down. 1 Peter 1 verse 10. As to this salvation, the salvation we enjoy, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you with careful searches and inquiries were seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 39 is speaking about the greatness of the least of the kingdom of heaven. You know about Hebrews chapter 11, the, all the, the passage of the, the faith of the old covenant saints, women and men, children, those Old Testament saints who walked by faith, the text says, some of which accomplished marvelous things through faith, and some of which experienced mocking and scourging and chains and imprisonments and stoning, and they were sown, uh, sawn in two. And verse 38 says, men of whom the world was not worthy. But what about all these Old Testament saints in Hebrews chapter 11 in that age of promise? Well, verse 39 of Hebrews chapter 11 says, all these, all of them, 
all the ones that had great successes and all the ones were sawn in half. All of these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. I think these passages are getting us closer to what Luke is talking about. Think of the greater knowledge and the greater experience that we have on this side of the cross. John the Baptist, struggling with doubt. John the Baptist didn't see much of this. He was rotting in prison. He didn't understand there's a first coming of Christ and a second coming of Christ. He didn't understand that the rejection of Israel would be reconciliation to the world. He didn't understand the mystery of the church. He didn't understand Jew and Gentile together in one body in the church. He didn't have the gospel records to compare and see how they match up and get full of the theology of the book of John to explain it all. He didn't have the explanation of the words of Christ in the epistles. He didn't have the last book of the Bible that spoke of the summing up of all things in Christ. He didn't understand any of the explanation of the details of the crucified one who would hang upon the tree for sinners. He never experienced the joy of seeing the resurrected Christ with the eyes of faith. But we have. We have. We have. We have the whole story. We are living right now in the era of fulfillment. We are living in the era of a better covenant. And not just better knowledge, as I've been trying to press in, but a better experience. People get wigged out about greater things we'll do than these. And maybe we'll get a sermon, right, Ursula, from Pastor Dan on that passage. What do we mean by greater things? What do we mean by greater experience? Well... Listen to this passage and write the reference down. John chapter 7, verse 37. John chapter 7, verse 37. Just listen. In the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, I mean, can you imagine someone saying this? If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from him. And then John interprets this by saying, by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to, the, up to that point, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Don't cling to me, Mary, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. And in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. We live, listen, we have the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Messiah, the Spirit of Jesus Christ, not just with us, but in us, in a categorically greater experience of the Holy Spirit for a constant source of power, a constant source of boldness, a constant source of sanctification and guidance and comfort and help. This is the mystery that was not fully revealed in the Old Covenant. And that is this, in the Messiah, in the person of the Messiah, Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is being united to the Messiah in the body of Christ, no longer under the law. That is new. Christ in you, the hope of glory, that is new. 
The shadows are old. The promises are old. The substance, the fulfillment is new. You've heard of typology. The type is a picture, is a shadow. And in the new covenant, that is elevated, the anti-type. There's always elevation. And we participate in the elevation, in the anti-type, in the beginnings of the, of the spiritual fulfillment of the new covenant in Christ Jesus. This is, this is 66 books. This is new covenant revelation that we have in our hands. Is that not better? To have both? Jesus Christ himself, the supreme disclosure of God, has spoken most loudly when he ascended to heaven, screaming to the demons in the darkness, I have conquered, and go to sit at the place of power and send forth my spirit as a resurrected, exalted king. That sounds better. There's a greater knowledge and greater experience, a greater privilege in the age of fulfillment than in the age of promise. That's what I'm saying. So what should we say to these things? Well, are you not thankful that you are in Christ Are you not thankful that the Spirit of the living God has been poured forth in your heart? (laughs) That you are participants in a better uh, better covenant? Are you not thankful that we get an explanation of the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ? Aren't you thankful that you live on this side of the cross? May we not become so familiar with all of these things, with the gospel itself, that we get bored with it and blinded to our great privilege as believers united to Jesus Christ. I like what J.C. Ryle said. He said, quotes, The child who knows the story of the cross possesses a key to religious knowledge which patriarchs and prophets never enjoyed, end quotes. Brothers and sisters, we are so privileged. May we press on to see it, to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We've had our eyes unveiled by the Spirit. May we gaze upon his glory in the Word and see him there and be changed evermore into his image. Oh, the devil wants us filled with disappointment and self-pity, focused on our circumstances. John the Baptist pointed people to Jesus, but instead of being able to be one of his disciples... Instead of just going on with Jesus as his disciples and hearing the rest of his teaching and seeing all this that I've talked about, John the Baptist, would he have been one who would stood with those women under the shadow of the cross? I don't know. He didn't get a chance. His head had rolled. He didn't get to see the marks in the hands and feet Like Thomas of old, he was left in the darkness of prison. He died in the darkness of that prison. And without all of the answers that he had desired. But not us. Not you. May this cause us to reflect on our great privilege. I think that's something of what Luke means As Jesus says, I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So we have been asked by Luke to reflect on John's place and secondly to reflect on our privilege. And third, and I think most importantly, tying it together, we are called by Luke to reflect on Jesus' person, on Jesus' person. Well, as Jesus said all this stuff, it's kind of, it made me 
even chuckle. There's one who was born of a woman at that time who was greater than John the Baptist. He was standing there. There was one who was not least in the kingdom of heaven, and his name is Jesus. And I want to reflect on his character and calling, just like we did John, as we wrap this up. Verse 24, when the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. Why did you go out into the wilderness? What did you go out to to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? And, And Jesus goes on and on. Notice the heart of Jesus for John the Baptist as he turns to the crowd, defending his character, defending his reputation. There's something very encouraging here. about Jesus and his tenderness towards John. I mean, John, popular in the early days, was now gone in obscurity. As J.C. Ryle said, quotes, deserted, friendless, and nothing before him but death itself, end quotes. In our circumstances, as we struggle to set our eyes on the truth this morning, we need to reflect upon the character of Jesus. Jesus' person, he's not frustrated with John the Baptist. Frustrated. Why are you doubting? No. He gives him signs. Here, tell, show him what I did. Quote this verse to him. Give him this. I can't, I can't give him anymore. He's part of the age, the early age. I can't give him all the fulfillment yet. You give him what I can tell him from the Word of God, but he's going to have to trust me. I say to you, this man, and he defends his character before the crowd because he loves John. And I know when we are rotting in the metaphorical prison of our lives, we do not feel loved by Christ, defended by Christ. But I'm telling you, he is there. He is your great defender. He is your strong tower. He is your refuge. He has not abandoned you in that jail, in that suffering. No, he's vindicating you. Friends, friends may fail us. Family members may reject us. Pastors may hurt us. But I'm telling you, what a friend we have in Jesus. What a friend. It has John's back like this. This struck me so much. What a comfort for us when we're misunderstood, like John was by the crowd. What a comfort for us when we're slandered. What a comfort for us when we're rejected or falsely accused. What a comfort it is when the great accuser of the brethren, Satan himself, tries to bring us into doubt and discouragement, saying, you are in your sins still. Look at you. What a comfort when we're haunted by the past shame, discouraged in our circumstances like Job of old. What a comfort, as J.C. Ryle said, that we may rest in the thought that we have an advocate in heaven who knows our sorrows. That same Jesus who maintained the character of his imprisoned servant before a Jewish crowd will never desert any of his people. The world may frown on them. Their names may be cast out as evil by man. But Jesus never changes and will one day plead their cause before the whole world. End quotes. So let us reflect upon the love of Christ. For his people. But let's then, as we close, reflect on his calling. You think John the Baptist had a great calling? May we not forget the greatness of the one to whom, whom John pointed. Behold, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm just going to hit this. And so hang and put your seatbelts on. Luke chapter 1, look at verse 76. As we reflect on Jesus and his, and his calling. Luke chapter 1, verse 76 says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, talking about John the Baptist, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. How? Look at verse 77. To give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, from which the sunrise on high will visit us and shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is speaking of Jesus, the sunrise upon high. And that makes us think of certain things. It makes us think of, of, of John chapter 1 and verse 4, the beginning of the book of John, where it says of Jesus, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The sunrise on high, the light of men. Now listen to this. Just listen. There came a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. And there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Now listen to this. John the Baptist reflected the light. We get to bask in the light of Christ. But Jesus is the light of the world. Let me say it another way. John pointed to the age of fulfillment. We participate in the age of fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the yes and amen to the promises of this book. Consider his great calling. And that makes me want to turn back to Malachi. So let's do that. Take a left to go to the last book of the New Testament to what Jeremy read, Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. Let's just find verse 16 of Malachi 3. You can read that again. But such words of the people of God, a book of remembrance were written. They will be mine. This is a prophecy. They will be mine. On that day I will prepare my own possession. I will spare them. Verse 17, as a man spares his own son. Who serves him. And then the great prophecy of the end of Malachi for behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that they will so it will leave them neither root nor branch. But verse two of Malachi four. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing on its wings. This is the light of the world. This is a prophecy of our Lord Jesus Christ, the sun of righteousness, the, the one who is in himself righteous, and the one who is the Jehovah Sidkenu, the Lord our righteousness, the one who will clothe us with his righteousness. And the text says he's the sunrise from on high who's visited us. He is the son of righteousness who's healing on his wings, the wings in that culture of the sunrise. You know, the beautiful sunrise where the light tails to the right and the light tails to the right. He has risen. He has lived that perfect life. 
He went into the grave, and the Son of Righteousness has risen. He has risen from the grave. He has risen up over, and He has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and He has poured forth His Spirit to bring healing. Yes, not just physical healing. We get pieces and tastes of that now, but then fully. But He brings spiritual healing, full forgiveness, full righteousness, the Spirit poured out within us. This is a prophecy of the new covenant realities of the sunrise who's visited us. It's poured forth his spirit in the age of fulfillment. And what is our response to these things? Well, you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. That's our response. And we get this as Minnesotans. Because we've been buried under the snow and cold for four months straight. And now the weather is perfect and it brings a certain joy to us. Well, that was like back then when you had these little calves. They were in the cold winter. They're in the, the stall and they're locked in their cage. And all of a sudden, it's springtime and it's time to feed. And the farmer lets them out and they literally bounce around in the, sunri- in the sunshine for joy. For joy of being released into something better. Released into something new. This is the joy of the new covenant. This is the better things for us. May we taste the joy of Christ now. Joy inexpressible. Full of glory. And this is just a foretaste through the spirit of the joy that is yet to be revealed to those who believe. This is us, brothers and sisters, in the age of fulfillment. The age of the Spirit. We have this joy. Our long winter is over. It's over in Christ. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Three, three reflections. Repent. Fill in the blanks. Repent. Repent for forgetting and flitting away our great privileges and being fine with lesser joys. Second, rejoice that you are in the kingdom. Do you remember what Jesus said in Luke 10? Nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Third, brother and sister, Rest. Rest. I imagine John the Baptist in that prison cell after his disciples came back and told them what they saw and heard about Jesus. I can imagine John saying, it is enough. He is enough. Brothers and sisters, least in the kingdom, Jesus has your back. He understands. He is patient. He is tender. He has saved you. He will vindicate you. Jesus loves me. This I know.